to kick off Serve Week together over the next seven days as a church. We're going to get outside the walls of the church and uh, serve our community together. And our prayer is that uh, this week would be a catalyst for our service all throughout the rest of the year, really, that we would form and deepen relationships with these various ministries that we're partnering with and serving alongside uh, that would encourage you to bring your family back every month, bring your life group back once a quarter to continue serving together. I got an impromptu opportunity to serve this past week. Personally, on Tuesday, a guy named Matt wandered into our church parking lot. He uh, told me his story. His car broke down, he had no phone, had no family or friends to call, even if he had a phone. Uh, he was homeless. He said he needed help fixing his car and getting a new phone. And I told him that all we keep on hand at the church, unfortunately, is Walmart gift cards. He was very upset by this. He said, I, I know in a church this nice, you're the head pastor, that you can offer more help than that. And he asked if I could at least give him a ride down to South County and get him a hotel room, swing by Walmart on the way, get him dinner. And uh, on the ride down, he explained why he thought that faith was silly and um, how he blamed everyone else in his life for turning their backs on him. And uh, as he was in shopping in Walmart, I offered to, to buy him some McDonald's. He insisted on Steak and Shake down the road instead. I pulled into the hotel to drop him off, and he asked why I hadn't booked the nicer one across the street instead. The reason I share this story is not to beat up on Matt, certainly not to highlight how good of a person I am. I can assure you that I did not react to all of Matt's complaining with perfect Christian love. I share the story for two reasons. Number one, to explain why I picked the sermon text that I did for this morning. On my car ride home, my phone buzzed to alert me that I had a new, new podcast episode available from Tim Keller, a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so I took that as a pretty clear sign that God wanted me to preach on Luke 10, 25, 37 this morning. That's where we're going to be if you want to open in your Bibles. But number two, I, I also share the story because one of the big questions asked in this passage is, who is my neighbor? Jesus commands us to love God and love your neighbor. That begs the question, who is my neighbor? And as we'll see, Jesus' answer is essentially, it's the person who you have the hardest time in the world loving. That's your neighbor. For me, that's probably Matt. This guy was as rude and entitled, condescending, ungrateful, and just all around as unpleasant a human as I've ever had the displeasure of interacting with. It's no wonder that his family and friends disowned him. But Jesus says, my followers will love even the mats of the world. As a matter of fact, if you don't love the mats of the world, you cannot inherit eternal life. That's what this passage is all about. That's the context for the parable here. A lawyer, religious, uh, a scholar of the religious law, the Torah, asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so I want to pull eight principles out here for us of good neighboring. 
how do we love the mats in our life? But I also want to warn you right up front that there's a twist ending to this sermon in principle number eight, that the ultimate answer to the question is we can't. You can't. You and I will never sufficiently, perfectly love anyone, much less the most unlovable person in your life. You won't do it. And if you are counting, like the lawyer, on your ability, your righteousness, your capacity to love God and love others well enough as your ticket into heaven, then friend, I've got bad news for you. You are in trouble. Instead, the moral of the story is that while you were not the good Samaritan, while you were the half-dead, beaten-down, bleeding-out, dying man on the side of the road, spiritually, with no help, no hope, but the undeserved kindness of a stranger, of a neighbor, of an enemy, that Jesus Christ did the unthinkable, and he stepped off his throne in heaven to climb up a cross for you. That's the good news. But I get ahead of myself. Would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. If you don't have a Bible to follow along in, it'll be on the screen, but we'd love to give you a Bible at the info bar. Just don't complain about which translation it is. (laughs) Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you even for the hard 
passages, the hard-to-hear passages, because of how convicting they are. The passages that hold up a mirror to our dark, selfish, unloving hearts that prove to us just how unloving we are, how incapable of perfectly following the law we are, and how unlovable that makes us. And yet, Father, we praise you this morning for the good news of the gospel, that while we were unlovable, unloving sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. That there's nothing we have to do to inherit eternal life. Simply surrender of all our our doing, all our attempts to self-justify. Father, if there's anyone this morning who's been trying their hardest to be a good Samaritan, who fancies themselves a good person, I pray that you would smack them upside the face this morning. You would shake them. That you would open their ears to hear, their eyes to see, their hearts to receive the truth of their spiritual condition. Their need for a savior. They might repent of their own attempts and simply turn to you for, in, in faith for grace. Jesus, thank you for offering us salvation freely. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Maybe see them. Before we, before we rush to principle number eight and throw our hands up and confess that we're unworthy and we can't love others perfectly, we need a Savior, we do need to recognize this morning that Jesus actually wants us to love people. He really does. He really calls us to love God and to love neighbor. That's, that's the command, the expectation. So how do we do it? Jesus offers us eight directives here. Number one, we need to check our motives. Check our motives. It's not enough to love people. We've got to love them for the right reasons. The lawyer here exemplifies three bad motives. He aims at putting down others, putting off troubles, and putting on airs. First, the lawyer puts down others. Why does he address Jesus in the first place? Verse 25 says, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Jesus' enemies were constantly trying to trap him in his words. Jesus had just prayed in verse 21, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, things like salvation, from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus said, if you can't become like a little child, you can never inherit the kingdom of heaven. And this offended the lawyer. I'm not a little child. I'm a wise, aged, educated student and teacher of the law. And so he tests Jesus. I'll prove that this guy has no idea what he's talking about and put Jesus back in his rightful place. And he does so, secondly, by asking a question. Oh, wise teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the lawyer, no doubt, desires eternal life. Everyone wants to make it to heaven. The question is why? What's your motive for heaven? For the lawyer, it's all about personal reward. 
It's the same reason that many self-professing Christians today come to faith. They come to Jesus hoping to enjoy the pleasures of heaven one day instead of praying that they might come to heaven so that they can enjoy the presence of Jesus. He is the joy of heaven. And by the way, we can only make it there, not by passing some arbitrary doctrine test, checking the right theological boxes, not by helping enough old ladies across the street, but through a real saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only way you make it to heaven. But the lawyer has no interest in that. He just wants to escape the troubles of this world. Jesus, what is the bare minimum that I have to do, that I must be troubled with in order to make the cut? And so Jesus answers, love God and love people. Love neighbor. And the lawyer's third motive here surfaces in verse 29. It says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he puts down others, he puts off troubles, and he puts on airs. He fancies himself a love expert. Certainly good enough to make it into heaven. Notice he skips right over the love God requirement. He doesn't ask, well, how do I love God? He just assumes, well, obviously, I love God sufficiently. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teacher of the religious law, the Torah, the Old Testament. I'm a Bible professor by trade. If anyone's getting into heaven, Jesus, it's me. Right? So unless you've got some other kind of different definition of neighbor than I do, uh, I think I'm good. He even stands up in verse 25 as a sign of his self-assertion and his pride. Spiritual pride was endemic to the Judaism of Jesus' day. Their oral tradition, the Mishnah, stated, Great is Torah, for it gives to them that practice it life in this world and life in the world to come. In other words, the better you keep the law, the more God loves you, the more God is going to save you. As Christians, we contrast that with the way that the Apostle Paul talked about the function of the law in the New Testament. Paul said that the law is a mirror to reveal our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. It's Romans 7, 9. It is to guide and lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith in him alone. Galatians 3.24. Paul says, no one will be justified by works of the law. Rather, we are justified by God's grace as a free gift through the, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.20. By the way, in the Greek, the lawyer asks his question here, in the aorist past tense. Literally, he asked, teacher, having done what will I inherit eternal life? In other words, Jesus, just give me the list of five or 10 or 613 boxes that I need to check, put behind me in order to punch my ticket to heaven. But Jesus replies in the present tense. Go and do this and you will live. In other words, if you are counting on your own good works to get you in, you will never be done. It'll always be do. Do more. Keep doing. That's what religion says. Do and do and do and do. But when Jesus died on the cross for you, he said, it is finished. It's done. And after he resurrected and ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father because he's done. He doesn't need to work anymore. 
His work of salvation for you on your behalf is now complete. What about you? Maybe you faithfully help others, but why? Is it to try and justify yourself, to feel better about yourself? Proverbs 16.2 says, All a person's ways seem pure to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Did I drive Matt all over town for the jewel in my crown? Because it made for a good sermon illustration? This is good material. I can use this. Because it made me look good in the eyes of others. Because it makes me feel good, like I'm a good person. Did I do it? Even because I asked WWJD, and I, I realized, you know what, Jesus would probably help this guy out, so I guess I'm going to, as well, albeit begrudgingly, through gritted teeth, or do we love others to please our Heavenly Father, to bring Him glory? Because nothing brings us more joy than putting a smile on God's face. Is that why we serve? That should be the motive for everything in life, to please God. Number two, to truly love others, we need to study our Bibles. Love means acting in another person's best interest, regardless of the cost to self. That is the biblical definition of love. But that means in order to know what is in another person's best interest, we've got to know God's word. Scripture is like our compass that always points to true north, what is right, what is pure, what is loving, not just in the relative sense, like it feels loving to me, but absolutely loving for everyone. When Jesus is asked here about eternal life, he doesn't reply by asking for the lawyer's opinion. Why don't you give me your take on the afterlife? He says, no, what is written in the law? I don't care about your opinion. I don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. What is in the law? How do you understand it? This is God's perfect guide for love and for everything else in life. And sometimes the Bible's answer on what is most loving surprises us, doesn't it? Our life group just read through 2 Thessalonians last week. It says, if anyone is not willing to work, don't let him eat. That doesn't feel loving, does it? Matt flat out told me, I used to have a good paying job. I'm not going back to work at McDonald's. And I probably should have replied, well, then I'm not buying you McDonald's or Steak and Shake. When you get hungry enough, you'll get a job and buy it yourself. That doesn't feel loving, but it's God's honest truth, straight from his word. It may feel loving to buy him dinner. It may feel loving to, to bear with, a.k.a. to enable your rebellious child's bad behavior instead of disciplining them feels unloving. It may feel loving to attend your gay co-worker's wedding, to use your transgender neighbor's preferred pronouns, but if our love for others isn't grounded in God's word, how will we ever know what is truly in another person's best interest? Number three, to love your neighbor, you've got to know your neighbor. Can't love someone you don't know. 
The minute the lawyer asks in verse 29, and who is my neighbor, he proves he's already failed the love test because you don't accidentally love people. If he doesn't even know who he's supposed to be loving, you can rest assured he's not doing it. If I went out of town and asked you to dog sit for me, feed my dog, and I returned and you asked me, oh, by the way, who's your dog? That's probably a pretty good indication that poor Bentley went hungry the past week. Consider motives again. Why does the lawyer ask who is his neighbor in the first place? It's because he wants to restrict the size of his neighborhood. He knows he's supposed to love his neighbors. I mean, the man himself is the one who recites Leviticus 19.18 from memory for Jesus here in verse 27. He's not ignorant of the law. He's what he's ignorant of, willfully ignorant of, is who the law concerns. If God calls you to love your neighbor, then the fewer the folks who are actually your neighbors, the smaller the circle of folks I've got to love. And let's face it, loving is hard. I mean, caring more about someone else's interests than, than my own, that's hard. And so the lawyer thinks, according to the dictionary, ha <laughs> ha, a neighbor is someone close to you, my immediate family, my closest friends, the people who live on either side of my house, maybe. Yeah, I mean, those people I can, I can handle, loving. But Jesus is about to blow this man's whole concept of neighborhood up, out of the water. What about you? You can only love someone to the extent that you know them. So do you, lo- do you know your neighbors? Do you even know them? By contrast, it is much easier to judge and condemn someone you don't even know. Racism, homophobia, I mean, all forms of looking down your nose and judging and condemning folks, it's all fueled by ignorance. The minute that you learn someone's name, that you shake their hand, you take the time and pay them the dignity and respect of listening to their story, you've already won half the battle in loving them. You've already made it twice as hard for you to hate them, condemn them. Do you know your neighbors? Not just the next door ones, the mat ones. The ones who come to your door knocking when you'd rather they not. The hardest ones to love. If you don't even know them, it's going to be awfully hard to love them. Well, number four, for some of us to know them and to expand our neighborhoods, we're going to have to change our roads. Jesus begins the parable in verse 30, saying, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Philip Ryken explains, The Jericho road passed through treacherous country with its narrow passages and dangerous precipices, It was an ideal place for thieves and bandits to ambush lonely travelers. In ancient times, people called it the bloody way. It was the kind of road that most of us sensible West County folk wouldn't be caught dead on. We wouldn't have to worry about being beaten dead on because we wouldn't be caught dead on it in the first place. But here's the thing. Sometimes... In order to help the kinds of people that Jesus is calling us to help, you have to be willing to risk taking the kinds of roads that they walk. When Darren Patrick started the Journey Church's Theology at the Bottle Works, 
ministry down at Schlafly Brewery, the Southern Baptist Convention sent him a letter asking why a Baptist church was in bars. What are you doing hanging out at bars? Darren replied, because I imagine that's where Jesus would be hanging out on Thursday nights if he was here. Jesus, the friend of sinners and gluttons and drunkards. Darren changed roads. Growing up, my church took mission trips to Guatemala City to dig trenches for plumbing and serve meals in the city's garbage dump where people would otherwise scavenge and fight vultures for food. One night after lights out, one of my friends, Far Curlin, snuck out and he took a taxi from the safety of our host church in the nicer part of town back down into the dump. And when the trip chaperones frantically found him the next morning, he said, I couldn't sleep peacefully in my sleeping bag on the nice part of town knowing that these precious kids that we just spent all day playing and serving were down here sleeping in cardboard boxes with rats and hypodermic needles. Far Curlin changed roads. What about us, West Hills? Will you change the roads you take so you can encounter and serve those in greatest need? Will you serve with R3 this week, even if it means venturing into East St. Louis? Will you serve at Bridge of Hope, even if it means going into North City? I'll be honest, I don't take my kids with me when we go to these places. I didn't invite Matt back to crash at my place this week. I got him a hotel. There are some roads I guess I'm not willing to travel. I don't claim to love perfectly. I don't claim to know where the line is drawn, if it exists at all, what degree of self-sacrifice Jesus desires from, Jesus demands of us. I don't want to believe that Jesus is calling me to recklessly endanger my own life, the lives of my kids for wicked people. But then again, that's exactly what he did for me, for you. When he went to the cross for wretched sinners like us. What I do know is that if we're going to love people the way Jesus did, we have to be willing to go the places Jesus went in order to reach them. Tax collectors and prostitutes' houses, the Gadarene Cemetery, Samaria places that no self-respecting first century Jew would be caught dead. Dangerous places. Will we go? Number five, to love others, you must forget your position. Forget your position. There are two reasons that both the priest and the Levite in Jesus' parable here could have been tempted to refuse love to this half-dead man based on their position. Number one, as religious leaders in the temple, the law stated that if they came into contact with a dead body, it would have made them ritually unclean for a week, and they'd have to go through this whole complicated, costly cleansing process. And so they told themselves, you know what, I better, just to be safe, I just better avoid this guy, ignore his moaning, pretend like he's 
already probably dead. I mean, he's as good as dead. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. What good's it going to do anyway? It's just going to make me unclean. He's going to die anyway. What's the use? Despite the fact that the law also clearly commanded that it was a person's duty, priest or otherwise, to do everything in their power to try and preserve life, to rescue those in need. Conveniently ignore that part. The second reason they would have been tempted to ignore the man is that Levites and priests were those specifically assigned in the Old Testament with the task of distributing from the temple funds to the needs of the poor. These guys are both professional people helpers. They got paid to do it. I imagine they felt pretty self-satisfied with the work that they've already done for those in need. And so when a situation comes along that requires them to give sacrificially, when it actually costs them something, they decide, eh, I've done enough. Once again, their very positions as caregivers, not to mention simply as fellow Israelites, God had commanded in his law, Deuteronomy 15, 11, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, that should have duty-bound them to help this desperate man. But ironically and tragically, it was their very position that prevented them from helping in the way they should. By contrast, the Samaritan in verse 33, based on his position, was the last person on earth that should have stopped to help this man. Riken explains, in centuries past, the Samaritans had defied God's law by intermarrying with the Assyrians. Over time, they had developed their own version of the Torah and set up their own center of worship. As far as the Jews were concerned, the Samaritans were half-breed heretics. And the feeling was mutual. In fact, another ancient Mishnah, oral law, warned against any Jew helping a Samaritan in need. It declared it would be more righteous to let that infidel die and burn in Sheol. To get a sense for just how radical this parable must have sounded to a first century Jewish listener, you and I need to think about the person that we would least expect that we we would least want to accept help from or offer help to to contemporize the story we might title it the parable of the good jihadist the good nazi for some of you the good trumper for others the good democrat the point here is twofold Number one, we've got to start to see past others' positions and learn to see them as people, as made in the image of God with infinite intrinsic dignity and worth people, regardless of their identity markers and position, status. And number two, we can't let our position get in the way of us helping them. I'll be honest, I was tempted to Last Tuesday, Matt came knocking, and I thought, man, I can't be bothered to drive this guy all, all over town. I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm doing ministry here. Yeah, so were the priest and the Levite. But friends, we follow a Savior who renounced 
his position as the sovereign king of the universe who did not consider his co-equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. For you. To serve you. To save me. To rescue us. Number six. In order to love others, we've got to cultivate our compassion. Cultivate compassion. What was different about the Samaritan? Why did he help when others passed the man by? Well, verse 33 tells us, when the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion. Splunk nidzomai. It is the word used more than any other in the Bible to describe how Jesus feels toward us compassion. Is that how you feel toward those in your life who are hardest to love? The Samaritan would have had every reason to spit on this Jew as he stepped on him on his way by. You got what you deserved, Jew. Because we love justice when it comes for people we don't like, don't we? Flip the rolls around. If you passed by a half-dead Nazi on the side of the road, a half-dead terrorist, you feeling compassion or justice, vindication? Here's the good news, friends. I know I told you I was going to make you wait until point number eight, but I can't help myself. You're not the good Samaritan. That's not the point of the passage. You're not the hero of this story. You're the one in the ditch. Do you get that? Jesus is so frustrating. He doesn't at all answer the lawyer's question here, does he? The guy wants to know what I can do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him a story in which the only character he could possibly identify with is the beaten guy in the ditch. Clearly, the priest and the Levite aren't the protagonists, so they're out. And the guy's thinking, I'm sure in Sheol, I'm not the Samaritan. And so I guess the only character I can identify with here is the half-dead guy. That's the point. You don't have the compassion you should for others. You aren't willing to set aside your position the way God has called you to. You won't change roads to help those in greatest need. You don't know your neighbors. You try and restrict the size of those you have to love so you can only love lovable people. And even then, you don't love them in the most difficult biblical ways. And even when you do, you do it for selfish and pure motives. That's you. That's me. That's us. We're in the ditch. You get that? You're not the good Samaritan. Let's go ahead and get point number seven out of the way too while we're at it. You won't risk your well-being to love others. Not for the most unlovable. You won't risk your, your well-being. Someone here is thinking, yes, I will. You don't know me. That just proves that you're the lawyer. The lawyer had convinced himself that he can love others enough to get into heaven. Jesus says, oh, really? What about Samaritans? 
How do you feel about that? So if you're sitting here this morning like the lawyer, getting defensive with me yelling at you, yes, I would risk my well-being. You don't know me. I'd jump into traffic to save a stranger's life. You hear those stories all the time. That would be me. I'd jump down in the subway tracks to save somebody, a total stranger, even after you noticed a swastika, his turban. Even when he's drunk and he jumped down there on his own, got himself in this mess, would you send your only child down there to save him? Because that's what God did for you. The fact that the man in the parable is only half dead means that the robbers are probably still nearby. Not to mention, if the Samaritan is caught by other Samaritans helping a Jew, he would be shunned and banished from his community. If he's caught by a group of Jews, they're going to assume that the Samaritan was the one who beat him. There is no good scenario here for the Samaritan. He's putting his life on the line, and then he spends the night with the guy to personally take care of him, and then he pays for a month's worth of lodging, and then just decides, you know what, that's not enough. Here's a blank check, actually. Whatever more you spend, just put it on my tab. I'll repay it when I come back. This guy could take advantage of the Samaritan's generosity. He could recover and just run up the tab. The Samaritan could literally go broke helping a sworn enemy. So I'm going to give you one last chance to confess and admit that you're not the Samaritan before we move on to point number eight. To admit that you would not write a blank check for a Nazi for the Marxist, BLM, LGBTQ+, SJW, activist, you wouldn't do it. And if not, that means number eight, you better trust in your Savior. Friends, you're not the hero. You're not the Savior. You need a Savior. Because of your lack of neighbor love, your failure to follow God's two great commandments. Listen, there's only two. That's it. Love God, love neighbor. God made it simple. We're so pathetic, we can't follow two rules. And spiritually, that makes us as good as dead on life support. As a matter of fact, your situation is even more dire than that, more dire than this man's. You're not as good as dead. Ephesians 2 says that you were dead. All the way, full-on, rotting corpse in the trespasses and sins. By nature, children of wrath, you were almighty God's sworn enemy. But God, being rich in mercy, in compassion, because of the great love with which he loved you, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's nothing you did. It's not your love. It's his love. It's grace. You're not the good Samaritan, and yet Jesus is far better than the, the good Samaritan. Because you weren't just dying, you were dead. And he didn't just cross the road to help, he hung on the cross to help. 
And it didn't just cost him a few days' wages, it cost him his life. He endured God's forsakenness, abandonment by the Father for you. So unless you love perfectly this morning, you better trust in a Savior who loved you perfectly and forgave all your sins, all your unlovingness. Because here's the thing. The irony is, once you do, all of a sudden, you will find yourself loving people better. <laughs> the only way to truly love people better is to admit that you can't, to let God love through you. You'll become a better neighbor. You want to know how my conversation with Matt ended? After he complained that I substituted the french fries for chili in his combo meal instead of just paying the extra 99 cents to uh, get both of them after he critiqued my choice of hotel, I said, Matt, you know what I believe? You spent a lot of time this afternoon telling me what you believe. Let me just tell you what I believe. He said, I believe that no one owes you anything in this life, except I didn't use the word anything. You are 39 years old with two good legs. Your parents don't owe you financial help. Your boss doesn't owe you your job back. Your girlfriend doesn't owe you a second chance. God doesn't owe you the breath in your lungs. And I sure as hell don't owe you the last three hours I just spent with you. The hotel, the Walmart gift card, the car parts I paid for, the fries or the chili or the old iPhone I'm going to go home tonight and scrounge up out of my desk drawer despite the way you've treated me all afternoon long. You don't deserve any of it. I said, and I can tell you this much, if you'd have showed up on my doorstep demanding help and treating me like you did this afternoon 10 years ago, I would have given you the only thing you really deserve, a swift kick in the pants right out the door. I said, but you know what? I figure that if God loved a rude, entitled, prideful, ungrateful, all-around unpleasant sinner like me enough to step off his throne in heaven and die on a cross for me, the least I can do is help a sinner like you. I'm not the hero. If your takeaway this morning is Will Duvall is a great guy, you've missed the point. Because, <laughs> listen, I can promise you I edited out a whole lot of four-letter words to make this church appropriate from my conversation with this guy. I did not love him perfectly, but I tried. And Christ is calling you to do the same this week, serve week, and every week. But you won't be able to in your own strength. And when you inevitably fall short of loving others the way that God has called you to, he is calling you to confess and repent and trust in a Savior who loves even when you don't. Let's pray.